as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Dr. Rob Fraley, welcome to the podcast. Vance, good to see you again. So you are the former CTO of Monsanto. Uh, many consider you the godfather of modern biotechnology and GMO crops. And you and I had planned an interview months ago to happen today. Uh, but then the coronavirus pandemic happened. And so we've changed everything. So I want to start off with a question. How are you weathering this storm? When did you first take coronavirus seriously? And what actions have you taken as a result? Well, you know, I'd say the last month it's gotten uh, my attention. Uh, my uh, wife and I and daughter have uh, have uh, pretty much stayed at home with all the uh, the social distancing for the last uh, several weeks. Uh, every once in a while, I get out to the uh, grocery store with my mask, and uh, otherwise, I spend a lot of time here in my office doing a little uh, reading and uh, catching up on things and uh, trying to stay as active as I can with uh, with all the modern technology we have to stay connected. So. At one point in time, you were at the helm of probably the most important agriculture company on the face of the earth. You were a, a part of a very small team, and now you're in retirement. So what is the difference between what you would have been doing if you'd have been running Monsanto right now and, and what you're doing in retirement? Well, you know, that's a big one. I've, uh, I've actually been uh, retired for a little bit over a year, and then I uh, consulted uh, with, uh, with Bayer. And so I'm, uh, I'm just getting uh, really fully into the, uh, the transition. And, uh, you know, I've uh, looked at uh, some other things to, uh, to do and keep busy. But what I'm really uh, passionate about is uh, uh, leading uh, the outreach uh, for science-based communication uh, you know, regarding uh, really the importance of innovation in ag and the food chain. So, you know, I'm keeping uh, connected with uh, several universities, uh, several groups that are doing uh, startup here in uh, St. Louis, uh, BioSTL and the Danforth Center. And then in the last uh, month or so, I've become involved with uh, the U.S. Ranchers and Farmers Alliance. Uh, I don't know if you know that organization, but uh, they're uh, – their focus is on bringing all of the different uh, ag food companies together across the uh, the ag and food chain, and really uh, generate uh, you know science based uh, messages regarding the uh, you know the importance of ag and food production, and using that uh, vehicle to uh, bring those voices together to amplify them. And really uh, to reach out directly to uh, the consumer regarding the, uh, you know, the incredible importance of, uh, of innovation in these industries. I think that uh, there could not be a better guest that I could have on right now than you, because we are about to enter a very, very important scientific conversation with the whole society when it's uh, going to be things like, when will we know that a vaccine is safe to use? Uh, at what point should we decide that we need to get the economy going relative to the safety of people. And you, as the as the one that was at the helm of a biotech company, as you're putting a new food into the market, what did you learn about what kind of testing people need to have to make them feel confident? And what sort of timelines and where do you put your trust in, in a situation like this? Well, certainly, um, you know, in a highly regulated industry like the pharmaceutical industry, 
the agricultural industry. Uh, you know, I always used to make the point that for us to introduce uh, a new biotech seed or food into the marketplace, you know, we would uh, ultimately do the regulatory testing uh, and submit data to the FDA, the USDA, and the EPA. And, you know, since U.S. is such a major grain and food producer, you know, those grains would also be exported or shipped to, you know, 40 or 50 countries around the world. And so we would do additional testing based on, you know, the import requirements from the various ministries of health, environment, technology from the various companies. So, you know, there's a lot of work going on to uh, to do the uh, the testing and uh, and make sure that these products have the the benefits that uh, that we're all hoping for. But I guess, you know, if you ask me, Vance, the one thing that I've really learned is, although it takes incredible science to create great products, it also takes a, a real commitment to communication to the public and to our policy and decision makers to make sure that those products are accepted, they're understood, uh, and, you know, reach the, the intended marketplace. And so one of the things that's going to be so important, you know, whether we're developing a new uh, food product or a new vaccine is to reach out to the public and make sure that they understand clearly the uh, the benefits and the use and any of the you know challenges or issues associated with uh, with a new technology. So that needs to be a, a very public uh, conversation. You know, over last, the years we we certainly night, seen. I Last night, I ran a, uh, a Twitter poll, which is certainly not scientific, right? You, you have no idea who's answering the poll. You may have self-selected just a whole bunch of people that already think like you. But I was really no, interested. I don't, I don't remember getting that one. Did you send that one to me? No, I just posted it, but uh, I'll, right. I'll, I will send it to you. And the question was, um, how much testing would you have to have of a vaccine before you think it should become mandatory for uh, participation in society, right? If you found out smallpox was back we'd be back doing vaccines so i put up there is it one month six months one year or more or never and i was shocked because 46 percent the last time i checked 46 percent of the people said less than six months it would be okay to have a mandatory vaccine and then you have the other 53 percent or whatever it is saying one plus year or more that is a political divide that is going to have to be bridged somehow because you can't have 50% thinking one way and 50% thinking the other. How would you approach this this issue, knowing that we don't actually know how long it'll take to come up with a vaccine? Well, as you know, uh, there's an incredible amount of uh, science going on. I was just, uh, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I've uh, been studying, uh, you know, the coronavirus uh, outbreak and uh, a lot of the science. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, as I think about reasons to be optimistic ab about this for the future, you know, first of all, I mean, we've seen, a, you know, an incredible unifying set of responses from our, our caregivers and our healthcare community that's been remarkable. You know, it's been, uh, for me, it's been uh, exciting to see how many companies, small, large, public, private companies, you know, really dedicate efforts to create, uh, you know, PPEs and supplies and other uh, 
other materials that are needed to, to help combat the uh, the coronavirus. And of course, you know, I, I have really been amazed at the public response. I'm so proud of how people have, have really handled, you know, for many, this is probably, you know, the greatest, you know, healthcare threat or challenge they've seen in their life. So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's so, you know, it, it gives me confidence for the future. But, you know, as a scientist, I, I am blown away by the scientific community's response to really, you know, addressing the coronavirus uh, problem. I mean, for perspective, you know, when, when the AIDS virus broke out several years ago, you know, it, you know, the technology was different. It really took years to get the uh, the sequence of the uh, the viral genome. In the case of the coronavirus, uh, literally within weeks, when the the outbreak occurred in China and the virus was first isolated, the scientists had already created the full length sequence of the uh, of the virus and shared that information broadly across the world, and and that immediately enabled scientists to use, uh, you know, DNA and nucleic acid detection technologies to come up with uh, with rapid tests. And, uh, you know, just last week, Abbott announced that they have now a five-minute test that can be uh, conducted literally in the in, uh, doctor's office. So that's exciting. But now knowing the, uh, the structure of the virus, uh, you know, people have been able to identify possible treatments. Uh, we know that the, uh, you know, that the virus... Uh, has been modified uh, to bind to a particular receptor on the human cell. That's the ACE2 receptor. Uh, knowing that, there's ways of designing interventions. Having that sequence of the of the virus uh, uh, S protein uh, enables a, a variety of approaches to create vaccines. The the last time I looked, there were over 40 different groups around the world taking different approaches to vaccines, which range from the you know very traditional approaches that have been used since the, the time of uh, Louis Pasteur to now really more modern uh, techniques using uh, just a snippet of the viral genome and uh, being able to uh, create uh, you know very uh, very potent uh, antibody uh, reactions and antigens that can be used for vaccines. So the the, the scientific community has really responded. I, I expect to see a pretty uh, rapid uh, response in terms of, uh, of uh, being able to create uh, vaccines that will be, you know, thoroughly tested, very effective and, uh, and very safe. But I still think it gets down to the point that your survey uh, emphasizes, and that is the science is one thing, but we, we will need a, an incredible communication effort. You know, as you know, there's still a, a division in this country regarding the, the role of science and vaccines and everything from measles and mumps to other uh, vaccines that, uh, that some individuals are electing not to, uh, not to use for themselves or for their children. And uh, I think, you know, so much of that has been based on misinformation through social media and on the Internet that the only way to really address that is to make sure that the the scientific efforts to create those vaccines are also accompanied by you know a very transparent communication effort to ensure that people not only understand the 
benefits of that technology for themselves and for their family, but the importance of creating a, you know, an immunity across the population so that we don't see subsequent uh, you know, cycles of outbreak uh, you know, as the uh, economy opens up and, uh, and people start to move again and as we ultimately uh, you know, enter uh, another flu season. You know, I felt like I was uh, relatively naive uh, just a few months ago. So I took a trip up to Alberta and everything was fine. It was way remote. But this was at the point when I definitely knew coronavirus was going on and I had friends telling me that I should wear a mask. And then I was also hearing from the officials that, hey, you don't need to wear a mask. It's It really needs to be reserved for healthcare professionals. And you think on some level they were doing that maybe as as a mistake on how well those things would work, or maybe they were doing it as a as a lie that allowed them to get the healthcare professionals the, the materials they needed. But either way, the rapid change from don't use masks to use masks now I think will cause a lot of problems when it comes to when to believe people on whether or not it's safe to come out of your houses uh, the the other things around this uh, disease, like how 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 fatal is it? How contagious is it? What do you think needs to be done to bridge when you already have one major you know international change of pace when they thought one thing and now we're going to another? Well, I think that just reflects the uh, the fast movement. I mean, uh, you know, it was, it was only a few months ago when WHO said that this virus didn't communicate from person to person and. You know, so there's, you know, as the science has evolved and we've learned more and, you know, I'm sure you've uh, seen studies on uh, droplet transmission and, uh, you know, you know, the the I've always thought myself that the, you know, the calculations, uh, you know, require both a numerator and a denominator. And until we really get the uh, the testing to the can you level explain what that I, means, the denominator part of that? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to, to to determine how virulent something is if you don't know how many people are infected. And we really don't, because the only numbers we have are on those limited percent of the population that have actually been tested. And a variety of reports from different countries indicate that a large portion, I, I've seen numbers as high as 40, 50, 60 percent of the people who will actually ultimately be shown to have contacted the coronavirus are asymptomatic. So, you know, we the only thing we really know are the, the people who have tested positive and, you know, uh, unfortunately any fatalities that have been, you know, confirmed as a result of it. But we really don't know the, the true state of the, uh, of the level of infection. Now, again, I think science comes to, uh, to bear on that because, you know, they are going to be developing very sophisticated assays to determine if, uh, if individuals have been infected, whether or not they carry, uh, you know, antibodies to the coronavirus as an indicator. And that's going to give us the, the, the true indication of, uh, of both the virulence and the lethality of the virus. So I think in the meantime, um, you know, what I sense is that the information, although, uh, you know, if you think about it, this has been going on for really just a few 
very, uh, very dramatic months, but we're learning a lot. And what I sense is that the communication and the information, you know, both around the world and across the country and from the variety of different states is all now really coalescing into, you know, general recommendations regarding, uh, you know, individual safety, PPE uh, uh, that are appropriate, isolation, isolation distances. And so, you know, I think given the uh, given the uh, the global nature of this pandemic, uh, I'm actually, you know, I, I guess I'm pretty optimistic on the not only you know the way the uh, the public has responded, but the way the uh, the science is is creating ultimately, I think, the ability to uh, to intervene and uh, and solve this particular crisis. So you're in a rare position in that you just recently got done running a multinational corporation with employees all over the world. And one of the challenges of all businesses, but in particular in agriculture, is you can't stop the machines if you want to make sure crops are going to go in the ground and people are going to get fed. So if you were at the helm making employment decisions and trying to decide who's essential, what's essential, how do you keep going, how would you be thinking through this problem with your team? Well, as you know, uh, uh, you know, there's nothing more essential than, you know, health care and food as we think about this crisis. And, and both, uh, you know, obviously both uh, health care and uh, everyone and all of the services affiliated with that, the transportation services, anyone affiliated with food or food production are essential uh, services. And, you know, there are some uh, research projects that are essential for example the work that is uh that is underway right now to develop and transport the seeds that are going to be planted across the country this spring in order to produce the uh, the crops and food that we will need for the future so you know those are clearly essential and those kind of activities are going on other areas uh you know of of research or uh can be handled uh, remotely. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, as you know, an explosion of uh, of, uh, of of ability to connect on uh, on social media with a variety of. Uh, and our our company has been uh, been very uh, advanced in that. So a lot of the the efforts can uh, can continue in that way. But you know, I uh, as important as agriculture and food production is, I'm I'm also you know, concerned. You know, the average age of a farmer in the United States is 58 years old. So almost by definition, they're in a uh, in a high risk uh, class. Uh, Nobody's talking about thing, that right now. Nobody is saying other, that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that well, for, you know, I guess the if there is a, a lot of farming, a lot of agriculture isn't in high dense population areas, and you know, some of the states with the uh, most important to food production are those states that have uh, that have uh, you know lower population and expanses. So that's a that's a, a bright side to this. What I do worry about is uh, you know as we think about uh, crops that uh, that are important to consumers, um, you know, a, still a large number of those crops need to be hand harvested, and I'm I'm saddened by so many reports of. Uh, of crops that can't be harvested because there's not available labor today in order to pick the blueberries or pick some of the uh, the important vegetables, and so that's uh, that's a challenge that could uh, could influence us significantly. Uh, longer term, uh, 
uh, a fair amount of employees for on farms come from Eastern Europe, come from South Africa, come from Australia. And so, uh, you know, as transportation of uh, is uh, and, you know, communication and travel becomes limited, I think that could represent a challenge, you know, for U.S. agriculture through this uh, production season. So it's a it's a top of mind concern uh, even at this point. So um, what do you think is going to be the world is going to look like in two weeks? Will we have have uh, stayed in place? What will be going on with the economy? How, how do you think people will be thinking about their heading back to work in two weeks? Well, it's a it's a great question. And, uh, you know, everybody has a, a view or an opinion. I mean, I'm looking at, uh, like everyone else, the uh, the data in terms of infection rates and uh, and. Uh, not, unfortunately, uh, you know, the deaths attributed to coronavirus, uh, the general models are saying, you know, that those are going to peak in the next uh, couple of, uh, of weeks. So, you know, I, I hope in a, in a few weeks to answer your question that we can start to see the uh, a little bit of light at the uh, at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, as I said earlier, I'm, uh, you know, I guess as a scientist, I, I, I'm always a, a bit of an optimist because uh, there's so many, you know, wonderful advances occurring, you know, both in the, the biotechnology and the healthcare world that I think is really closing in on what will be a number of, uh, of both treatments and uh, immunizations and, you know, tests to uh, to help understand, monitor, control and eliminate the uh, the the coronavirus. So you've been a person that has been able to see the future and act on it, make investments into biotech, into scientists that their results of their work isn't going to play out for 10, 15, 20 years. What right now do you think with the with the wild impacts that coronavirus is having on the economy and and things that are changing, what do you think is going to change the most? Where do you see the horizon looking different now that we're in a we're heading into a post-corona world. Well, let me do it two ways. Let me do, first of all, the things that that I think we need to reflect on. So um, the first thing is, I mean, like everybody else, uh, you know, I go to the grocery store and it's uh, it's hard to find, you know, certain supplies, uh, you know, whether it's toilet paper or hand sanitizers or alcohol. Uh, but so far, We've been blessed in this country that the uh, the food supply is uh, is there. So I can never take it for granted. But you know, one of the things that you know, I just want to put a, uh, a a real shout out for is everybody who is you know involved in the uh, in the food production system, and you know, from the the farmers and the processors to the folks involved in uh, shipping and transportation to you know the folks who are stocking the shelves and at the uh, uh, checkout counter, you know, they've been doing a wonderful job and, uh, you know, never want to take it for granted. But, you know, one of the things that in general we haven't worried about is the uh, availability of food. And so many people have, you know, contributed to, to supplying food for shelters and contributions and volunteers. You know, I think we can look back and say one of the real strengths of this country and one of the real blessings is that we are a food secure country. And, you know, not only can we uh, you meet our own demand, meet our own demands, but, uh, you know, we ship food to uh, countries around the world. And, uh, you know, at a time like this, uh, you know, 
I'm glad that's an industry that we haven't outsourced. It's an industry that we can count on. And I think it really points to how important it is. You know, if I can interrupt you there, there, there's, there's uh, so you and I have known each other for a long time. And uh, I know that when you and I were both going out and speaking, you had always had um, a place where you said local matters. You've got to have these other versions like organic and other means of production. And to be totally honest, Rob, I thought you were kind of putting people on about that. I thought you were the the head of the large corporation that had to kind of pat the other system on the head to be like, oh, that's a nice thing. But now in coronavirus, I am shocked awake to the idea that we need a variety of food systems. You need people that are producing on the local level so that you can have ways of getting uh, chicken and beef and and fresh vegetables that are outside of the traditional system, so that that way, when we apply the the pressure by not having restaurants or not having nearly as many, you have other outlets. So, I was very very shocked by how much my belief in efficiency at all costs was was really pretty wrong. Do you feel that sense now that you're watching how the food system is changing? I mean, it's it's been very resilient. I I agree with you 100. percent yeah, I think, you know, as, as I've always said, I mean, I start from the consumer and what, what our role is, you know, I think in the food production system is is to meet that demand that the consumer has. Unfortunately, in this country, we have a, a variety of consumer interests. We have a variety of uh, production systems. We have uh, a variety of uh, both crop and animal products that, uh, you know, that fill our shelves and our food supply. And, and I absolutely believe that that's a strength of our country to be able to have, you know, that kind of local production and, you know, different technologies, different paths to production, I think all complement it. I think that the great thing about local production, of course, is that it uh, it does provide that resiliency you're talking about. I think it also, you know, gets more and more people engaged in what is uh, truly a, a vital industry. I mean, in this country, probably less than 2% of the population is involved in agriculture. Probably another 15 or 20% is involved in food processing and uh, food production and delivery. So it's uh, it's still a very important part of our economy, and it, uh, it's been uh, very resilient. You know, so in, in addition to, to that, I think the other thing I would hope for is that people realize that uh, – you know, we have had a, a pandemic challenge like this almost every 10 years. You can go back to AIDS, you can go back to SARS, you can go to MERS, and now the, uh, you know, COVID-19. Uh, nature is always going to throw changes and, you know, curveballs really in terms of new pathogens and new pests. And so for me, one of the things that, again, I, I, I'm just so in awe of is how you know, the the advanced scientific tools, whether it's the speed at which we can sequence a genome or the ability to rapidly identify the portion of that virus gene that can allow us to make the, the best antibodies or the best vaccines. That, that, that is now literally done in days and weeks versus months or years just a, a bit ago. And so that, that investment in research you know, whether it's public sector research, private sector research, and frankly, whether it's in healthcare or 
dealing with crop pests or livestock diseases it is really an important investment and an insurance policy for us in the future knowing that we are inevitably going to be addressing these types of challenges in a global world. And so, you know, I hope one of the things that that comes out of this is that we we all understand and recognize, you know, the importance of uh, of the investment that this country and frankly countries around the world, you know, make in the kind of basic research and science that gives us the capability to understand, respond and mitigate with the speed at which we can do today. You know, I know, you know, you know, we've uh, we live in a world where everything is almost instantaneous and and that's really the expectation. And and I look at the the scientific response to the uh, coronavirus and and where we stand and how many entities around the world are engaged in solutions that you literally can see every day that are coming on the internet or in press releases or you know on the the television programs it is mind-boggling to to see the effort and the uh the approaches that are taking to help defeat this uh this uh you know endemic so when you think about the the new technology that's coming online the speed with which things are happening the amount of sharing that's going on what do you think is the role of IP, intellectual property, in all of this? Because you've been in a world where so much of your technology was protected by patents, but we're in a different game. So do you what, do you have any thoughts on how we should think about IP during the time of a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's always a, a balance between the IP protection and licensing and broad use. And you know, in our case, you know, with uh, you know, with the history of products we developed, one of the things that uh, that I was always the uh, the proudest about Vance was uh, early on we made the decision to license our technology broadly. So while uh, while our company you know enjoyed the benefits of uh, of biotech traits or new products with our seeds, you know, we also licensed uh, I think over two hundred uh, other you know companies, including some of what would have been viewed as our uh, our toughest competitors. So for people the, that aren't the, aware the of seeds, thing, is, yeah, that, is that in the seed industry, you have seeds that you're growing that are competitive. Pioneer has seeds that are different than Monsanto's at the time, which would be bare now. And what you're saying is, we allowed a genetic engineered solution that we had put in our seeds to be used in somebody else's seeds. They paid us a fee for using that, but they were also able to go out to the market. So it wasn't like you can only get these protections if you buy Monsanto seeds. So just for people that aren't aware of how that how that works. Vance, you, uh, you got that down well. And, and, and like I said, it was really one of our most important uh, decisions. And we, we uh, broadly licensed that technology. But the other thing, and I think directly to the point of your question, was we also donated that technology broadly through collaborations with the Gates Foundation, through uh, specific... Uh, uh, organizations that were involved in transfer of technology to developing countries. In fact, you know, as I go back and just a little bit of ancient history for you, even before we launched the first biotech seed products in the U.S. in the in 1996 and 1997, uh, we had already worked with others and uh, in an effort that was led by uh, Dr. Norman Borlaug to license 
free of charge that technology to a number of uh, developing uh, countries and organizations that would be, you know, creating and sharing that technology. So I think, you know, to the heart of your question, you know, uh, IP under special conditions like this is is really the beginning of uh, the ability to to license and exchange technology, and so you know I think it's always a balancing act between the uh, the reward of intellectual property that encourages uh, companies to make the investment, and then the the, ju the judicial use of that IP to make sure that it reaches the public and has its greatest uh, you know benefit. So you know you'd ask me the question about how life is going to look after this is over, and I talked about. The, uh, the importance of supporting uh, basic science and the importance of agriculture. I think there's going to be some changes in agriculture. What, what is that? What changes do you think? Well, I think, you know, a couple of things that I see changed as a, as a result of, uh, uh, you know, work, working our way through this pandemic. You know, we, we talked about one, uh, labor availability. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we bring a lot of labor in to manage, uh, manage our farms. So uh, immigration challenges and just movement of people is something that's top of mind. I think one of the, the ramifications of that is it's going to encourage even more investment in automation and robotics on the farm. You know, we're going to have to be more creative on uh, on how we harvest, how we produce and process food. And I think it's going to put even uh, more uh, focus on phytosanitary measures, how we package, how we distribute. I think those are going to be top of mind for consumers and, uh, you know, will be both uh, areas of challenge, but also uh, a business opportunity as we uh, as we uh, go forward. You know, as you other, say that with the business opportunity, the thing that I think is uh, really important is cities preparing for starting back up, because I think that we're going to have my in my opinion, the way that the containment will end up rolling out is that cities uh, on their own regions will say, hey, we've got it pretty well contained, we're going to start opening up. So whichever cities make the changes that they need to allow manufacturing and other types of work to come, we're going to reshore a lot of things. And my hope is that St. Louis becomes uh, not only the biotech hub, the plant hub, but the drone hub. I hope that we change the rules, whatever we need to do to make it as valuable as possible to be in this place making agricultural drones. That's what I want to see. Yeah, I think the, the robotics and the automation will be big. I think the uh, phytosanitary, whether it's assays, screens, packaging, will be uh, top of mind. I think the other thing to think about longer term is, uh, you know, I think we will, we, we will see more of a shift coming out of this in, in how people uh, eat. And so as a result of that, I mean, I don't know how you spent a lot of your time, but I've probably done more cooking in the last two months and, and than, I, oh, than I have in the last few years. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see pattern changes in terms of uh, what crops we will grow, what foods people will eat, how those foods will be prepared and, uh, and processed. So that's, again, both going to be uh, an opportunity and a challenge. I think the other thing that, uh, that we'll see influencing, and I'll talk about it through the agriculture and the rural lens, um, you know, the, the need to be connected uh, going through this crisis has been top of mind for everybody. And social media has played a, uh, a huge role in that. You know, there's a, 
there's a large part of the U.S. and rural America that still doesn't have high-speed Internet and still doesn't have the, uh, the connectivity that we're going to need. And I think that's going to put a, uh, an additional focus on as we think about rebuilding our infrastructure. I think that's going to be uh, very important and top of mind as we, uh, as we think about uh, you know, the things we need to do for the future. Oh, 100%. And I mean, I was saying this the other day on, on Twitter. Uh, not only the, the rural one is a huge one, and that one's a really difficult problem to solve because you it takes a lot of infrastructure for few people. But also in the cities, the city that has the most access to fiber uh, internet to, to super high speed will have a huge incentive for people to move there to have their houses there because if you have another pandemic and you're locked in you're going to want to be able to use way more technology than what we're even using right now like just webcams on computers won't be what we're doing in five years we'll have the i have have you ever tried a virtual reality headset absolutely I yeah. mean, there there is no reason by the time we have the next pandemic that people aren't doing work virtually with those on because it's so much more encompassing of an experience. You could do so much more, but you can't do it unless you have high-speed internet. So my hope is this is a call to cities, people that are organizing, and to say, do what it takes to get fiber everywhere. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, whether it's broadly how we communicate, how we do business – uh, how we uh, procure our goods and services, and frankly, and probably most important from a rural perspective, how we deliver health care. You know, the, the various, uh, you know, telemedical connections that, are, you know, could and should be available are going to be are going to be uh, right at the top of the list. So I, I see all of those being Have uh, you grounded. seen a doc doing teledoc yet? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's awesome. It's yeah, like the it's best wonderful. thing. It's a, my wife uh, has a physical therapy business, and she went to doing virtual. She now is consulting with people that are that are having pain when they're running. She just says, "Take a video from this angle, from a video from that angle. Ship it to me. I can analyze it. We'll get on the phone, and we can fix your running problem." And this has got to be happening all over the country right now. And we're going to see an explosion of sensors, uh, diagnostic kits devices that do a variety of uh, monitoring so uh, you know those are all uh, those are all um, going to be accelerated uh, both in terms of their importance but also you know I think uh, you know this has been a uh, a period of rapid adoption probably by a lot of new users and so we're gonna we will have trained a, uh, a new uh, a new component of the you know, of our population to uh, expect and demand these kind of services. So yeah. I think that's across agriculture, food production, healthcare, uh, you know, a broad impact. Well, what do you think? I mean, I think one of the ways that innovation is already happening faster is we've knocked down regulation. And there may be some level of regulation that you have to have, but this might be a good time for us to have a brush fire and see what grows back as necessary. Well, I'm always a fan of that. I mean, it's always the balance between, uh, you know, the uh, protection you provide versus the, uh, you know, the cost and the speed. And, you know, I think, you know, I think what's important is that all of that gets reexamined, you know, because, um, you know, it, both are important and we just need to make sure we're at the right middle ground to uh, to do both. So final question uh, you marshaled the the intellectual efforts of thousands of scientists, some of the most brilliant scientists in the plant world. Um, right now, scientists are are incredibly important in this in this fight in, of coronavirus. 
What advice do you have for people leading groups of scientists? How do you keep people motivated? How do you keep them working through a time of fear? What What do you have to say that can can help people learn from what you learned over the many years of running Monsanto? Well, I tell you, the uh, the first thing is is that uh, individuals are just incredibly passionate, and I think the call to action that uh, you know whether it's the challenge to address the uh, the quick response to a coronavirus, whether it's the challenge to continue to increase the yields and productivity of food crops so that we can meet the demand of, uh, of 10 billion people or the development of new methods that allow us to farm more sustainably and uh, to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I think there's a high-level motivation. Now, the biggest challenge is uh, is keeping individuals, uh, making sure they observe the uh, the appropriate uh, social uh, distancing and the things that we need to do in the short term to uh, to work our way through the uh, the pandemic. But uh, you know, um, I have never ever ever seen a, a lack of passion or interest. But what I hope again is that you know, as a society. Uh, both in the U.S. and around the world, we understand the importance of investing in the basic sciences across healthcare, agriculture, animal and crop agriculture, because, you know, we need these innovations in healthcare. We need innovations in agriculture to continue to meet, you know, the escalating demand for food, but also, you know, producing crops in a way that are that is more sustainable and more beneficial to the planet. And so there's a there's I think you know these are some of the most important careers uh, there are in the world. I think they have enormous benefit to society and uh, I think that uh, you know as I reflect going through this pandemic, uh, as I said, I am in awe of how the uh, scientific community has uh, has responded uh, broadly to uh, to these uh, these challenges. And uh, you know, I think in many ways it can help lead the uh, you know what I sense is going to occur later on is you know we will get through this. We will get through this because we've all worked and we've all pulled together. A big part of that has been the the medical community and the first responders and all of the companies that have uh, that have engaged to uh, help meet the demand and uh, and you know I think this can be a real uh, unifying uh, uh, impact across our culture and society and I I really uh, hope for that you know so I'm a, I'm an optimist I I believe we will weather this storm and we will come out the uh, the other side uh, stronger smarter and better prepared to address the next challenge that uh, that nature uh, turns our way and if people wanted to uh, follow you or comment on on anything we've talked about uh, here on on how can they get a hold of you well a couple of ways so um, I'm uh, just putting in my own uh, website uh, Rob Fraley but at on Twitter my Twitter handle is at Rob Fraley R O B B F R A L E Y and you can always uh, follow me on uh, on LinkedIn and so uh, um, and if people you know, comment to you they can they can uh, talk with the CTO of the former former largest biotech company in the history yeah. of the planet <laughs> They'll dance. I, I I don't know if I can uh, I don't know if I can live up to that reputation, but I can tell you it uh, it's uh, it's really uh, it's really exciting to uh, to be here um, hunkered down on the sideline uh, 
watching and reading and seeing how uh, how scientists around the world are uh, are addressing this challenge and uh, and how our healthcare workers and our healthcare community is uh, is responding. Uh, you know, well, we have a lot lot to be thankful for, and uh, and uh, you know, for me, it's it's all about those individuals and uh, and what they've done. Those are the uh, those are the heroes that matter. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I hope you view your uh, scientific knowledge and leadership as uh, as something that's essential. So, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Vance. All the best, and keep uh, keep on with the podcast. Thank you.